you have your Bibles, would you open them please to the third gospel, the gospel of Luke. On Sunday morning, we're in a sermon series entitled, Reaching. Reaching across the table to bring our family to Jesus. Reaching across the street to bring our neighbor to Jesus. Reaching across the ocean to bring a lost and dying world to Jesus. This morning, we're looking at the second message, Reaching Our Neighbors. Reaching those in our community that make up our circle of friends and acquaintances. Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 27. We're going to see the master at work. And after these things, Jesus went forth. And he saw a publican, a tax collector named Levi better known as Matthew, sitting at the receipt of custom. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed the Lord. And Matthew made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of other tax collectors and other ilk that sat down with him and Jesus the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, murmured to his disciples. They grizzled, they griped, they they complained to his disciples, saying, Why does your master eat and drink with such publicans and sinners and tax collectors? Jesus overheard them and he answered. He said, They that are whole do not need a physician, but they that are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. The great painter, the great artist, Leonardo da Vinci, was putting the finishing touches on one of his masterpiece paintings that one day would find itself in a museum and be admired by the entire world. As he was painting that picture, one of his young students was standing afar in the background watching the master paint the picture. Just before da Vinci was to finish this masterpiece, this heirloom that would one day hang in museum across the world, just before he finished, he beckoned for the young student to come forward. He told him to hold out his hand, and he put the paintbrush in his hand. And he said to that young man, that young artist, finish the picture. You finish it. With the young artist, the young man began to stutter and stammer. He was hesitant. He was reserved. He he didn't know what to say, and he finally said, but but, I, I can't. And Da Vinci replied, but you can. You will never know until you try. You will never know till you try. Last week we stood in the background and we watched Andrew bring his brother Peter to Jesus. 
This morning, we're once again going to stand in the background and we're going to watch the Master, the Lord Jesus, bring Matthew to himself. Now, as we stand and watch, I want to remind you of two things before we go to the text. Number one, 75%, three out of every four people who will grace the door of a church just like this one, or will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 75% of them, three out of four of them, will come to church, will come to Christ by personal invitation. Personal invitation. You and me asking them to come to church. You and me asking them face to face to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Churches have got it all wrong. We've depended on revivals and crusades and concerts and special events and publicity such as TV, radio, billboard, newspapers, mail-outs. We've depended on facilities. We've depended on programs. We have depended on the status of a preacher or the status of a singer. Or we've even tried to adjust our style of worship because we and our sincere way of thinking but sincerely wrong way of thinking have thought if we do these things to play a flock in. And the truth of the matter is they don't come. And as we become more and more a post-Christ America and a post-Christ church, it's going to be harder and harder to get them to come in these doors. No matter what kind of music you have. No matter what kind of facilities you give them. No matter how much coffee you serve. Personal invitation. That's what brings three out of every four to church and to Christ. Secondly, if we're going to do the great commission that we've been called to do, and that's to reach our family, our, our neighbors in this world. We can no longer just stand back and watch somebody else do it. Each one reach one is not just a slogan. It should be our philosophy of life as believers. When it comes to inviting people, whether it be to church are witnessing to them about the Lord Jesus. 20% of all believers do 80% of the inviting. 20%. One out of five do 80% of the inviting. They step up. They take the paintbrush from the master's hand and they finish the work. The rest of us, quietly, approvingly, stand back and watch. The early church started with 120 people. We've got three times that much right here in this service. It started with 120 people, and in less than just a few years... It had thousands. 
Why? Oh, because they had great preachers. No, they didn't. Because they had great singers like Keith and Jason. No, they didn't. Because they had great facilities. No, they didn't have any facilities. Because they had great resources. No, they didn't have no resources. What the early church had was men and women and young people, just like you and I, who took the Great Commission seriously and went into their families and went into their friends and went to the world and invited people. And it was said when they got through, they turned the world upside down for Jesus. We can't turn the community upside down for Jesus. They turned the world upside down for Christ. Now, this morning, we're going to be looking at some principles once again. This time, taught to us not by Andrew, who did a good job last week, but by Jesus himself. I want us to see how Jesus invited people. And I want us to learn from the Master that we might take the brush and finish the job. The first thing I want you to know if you got your Bibles at verse 27 of, God, of Luke chapter 5 is that Jesus came to Matthew. It says, and after these things Jesus went forth and he saw a publican, a tax collector, a sinner, whose name was Matthew or Levi. He was sitting at the receipt of custom. That's where they collected the taxes. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now I want you to notice Jesus came to Matthew. Matthew didn't come to Jesus. Okay? What we do here on Sunday is to prepare us for what we should do Monday and Saturday out there. So, Jesus comes to Matthew. Now, who was Matthew? Well, the Bible tells us he was a tax collector. Now, we don't have a favorable view of tax collectors today, do we? It's not the favorite letter you want to get from somebody. Well, they even were lower in status in that day than they are today. In fact, the tax collector was alongside a prostitute at the bottom of the sinner totem pole. You didn't get any lower than a tax collector or a prostitute, and Matthew was a tax collector. He was hated, he was despised by everybody. The Romans who hired him hated him and despised him because they didn't think much of the Jews anyway, and this was a Jew who agreed to work for them, which made him lower than the lowest. So he, he worked for pagan Romans who thought he was the scum of the earth betraying his own people. And his own people hated and despised him because he gouged them in collecting taxes. The Roman government said, we want 20% out of everybody. You get us 20%. Well, tax collectors could then charge the people whatever they wanted to charge them. So Matthew would up the rate to 50%. He paid Rome its 20%. He kept back the other 30%. You said, well, if I wouldn't pay him. Well, if you didn't pay him, you'd go to jail. He had the authority to put you in jail. 
I mean, it was a crooked system, that tax system in that day. <laughs> Just seeing if you're listening. In fact, one historian said that tax collectors in that day were the armpits of Israel. I mean, you can't get any worse than that. And it's interesting, Jesus came to him. Jesus came to Matthew. He didn't go to the hotshot attorney. He didn't go to the medical doctor. He didn't go to the banker. He didn't go to the celebrity in Hollywood. He didn't go to the rich athlete. Now they need Jesus too, don't get me wrong, but Jesus went to Matthew. Why? Why would Jesus pass by these respectable sinners to go to the lowest sinner there was? To go to the scum of the Roman Jewish society? Why would Jesus go to Matthew? Because Matthew was sick and he knew it. And he wanted to get healthy. He didn't know how. Does that make sense to you? Matthew knew he was sick spiritually. He knew what he was. He knew what he was doing. And he knew where he was going. And he really, in his mind of mind, in hearts of hearts... He really wanted to change. He didn't like who he was. He didn't like what he did. He didn't like where he was going on earth or in eternity. He just didn't know what to do. And Jesus looked into his mind. Jesus looked into his heart. And Jesus said, there's a lot of sinners around here. But they don't know they're sinners and they don't care if they're sinners. They don't want a savior. They're perfectly happy in their sin and where they're going. But Jesus looked for people who weren't. And when he saw Matthew, he came to him. Those who think they're healthy don't want a doctor. But those who are sick do. And Jesus said, I'm the great physician and I've come to bring healing. Learn a principle for a man to be saved. He must see he's a sinner and he must want a savior. Until then, it's a waste of time. But in Matthew, there was a sinner who knew what he was, who wanted a savior. He just didn't know who the savior was. That's why it's easier to invite a drunk in a gutter to come to Jesus than some high-heeled socialite. It's easier to invite a prostitute at a medical clinic getting treated for disease than it is some white-collar professional who has a house and three cars and plots of money and hasn't got a care in the world and doesn't care about anything but himself. Drunks know what they are. Prostitutes know what they are. Matthew, a tax collector, knew what he was. He was empty. He was lonely. He was guilty. He was fearful. He was insecure. He didn't know where to go. And Jesus comes to him. 
May I be honest with you? You're not the most attentive audience that I preach to. I'm sorry. You're not the most responsive people I preach to. Let me tell you who they are. They're bikers. If they walked in this church, your jaw would drop and say, what kind of ilk has just come in here? I bet they're coming to cause trouble. Outlaw bikers. They're inmates. Who are going to serve time, and some of them are going to serve that time the rest of their natural days. They're homosexuals. As they sit there with their partner, they're attentive and they respond to what I say. They're street people who haven't got a roof over their head or clothes on their back and don't know where the next meal's coming from. They're gang members. When I speak to these kind of groups, and I do more frequently than you would imagine, They look at me, they listen to me, and they receive what is said. I wish I could tell you they all got saved. I don't know that any of them get saved. Maybe a few do. But I can tell you this. They listen. Because they know what they are. And they may not be happy with it, but they don't really know how to get out of it. And so that's what you share with them. There's hope in Christ. That's what Jesus came to Matthew. He brought himself. He brought hope. In October of 1995 in Columbia, South Carolina, a young minister was working at the prison there. His name was Mr. Bob, everybody called him. And Bob had just finished going from cell to cell talking to some of the inmates. And as he was on his way out of the prison, he noticed that there was a young man sitting on the floor in the darkness of his cell because he had knocked his light out. He was sitting on a floor of urine and feces. His hair was long, blonde, matted. It kind of looked like it had glue in it. It was so stuck together. His head was down. He, he looked like death warmed over. You could hardly stand the stench that was coming from him in his cell. There was pornographic magazines and newspapers thrown everywhere. It looked like a pigsty even for a prison. And cockroaches crawled all over him as he just sat there on the floor with his head buried in his knees. And Bob, who had already ministered to respectable inmates, walked by and something said, stop. He spoke to the young man. The young man said nothing. He tried to talk to the young man. The young man said nothing. And finally, Bob said, it was a God thing. He just said, I said to him, Jesus. And I kept being led to say, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, 
And as I've kept saying it, the young man's mouth began to quiver. And he tried to say Jesus too. And finally he got it out. Jesus. 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 My Jesus. Well, Bob had to leave. He come back the next week. And lo and behold, what he saw. That cell where the light was out now had a new light hanging. That cell that was covered in urine and feces had been mopped clean. The newspaper and the pornography magazines were gone. The nasty pictures on the wall had been taken down. The young man who had the long blonde hair that was matty had now washed it and cleaned it and it was blown back. He had new fresh clothes on. The stench was gone. His eyes were open. They were bright. And he and Bob began to have a conversation about what happened that Friday. The bottom line was Jesus Christ saved his soul. You say, that doesn't fit the way it happens. Well, I'm not going to tell God how to do his business. God is God and we're not. But my Jesus was enough to bring the Lord Jesus into his life. And for the next six years, that young man would be a dynamic witness in that prison. So much that he would get national attention. So much that even those who would execute him six years later wept profusely. You say, Pastor, because he was a Christian, they didn't let him go. Oh no, he had to pay for his crimes. He was a rapist, he was a serial murderer, he was unsociable at one time, he was hateful, he was even called demonic. He had a terrible past. And society said he had to pay for it, and he did with his life. But this morning, Rusty Woomer's in heaven because Bob took the time to talk to him. The scum of the present. And he listened and responded. Jesus comes. And ladies and gentlemen, we would be wise not to pass by people that may not fit our profile of who needs him. We size up people sometimes wrongly and assume wrongly. Jesus came to Matthew. Secondly, Jesus invited Matthew to follow him. And the time was right for Matthew to say yes. Notice Jesus said, follow me. He came to him and then Jesus spoke. A two-word sermon, by the way. Follow me. Say, Pastor, why don't you preach two-word sermons? Because if I did, you would complain. We're paying that preacher all that money for two words. I know how you Baptists work. Follow me. Now I'm going to make an opinionation and speculation because it's not made from scripture. 
hope you allow me to take liberty and say this. I don't believe this is the first time that Jesus has spoken to Matthew. I believe they have crossed paths several times while Jesus is ministering. I believe Jesus has had conversations with Matthew before about following him. And I believe Matthew has listened respectfully and said no each time. I believe some of the disciples of John the Baptist have spoken to Matthew. I believe some of the disciples of Jesus himself have spoken to Matthew. They said, listen, would you allow us to bring you to Jesus? And I think Matthew, again, very politely, has said, no, I'm not interested. I don't have time for this philosophy junk. I don't have time for religion. I'm a man who's a tax collector. Money is my God. I don't need any of this. And each time he said no. But on this particular day, another invitation is given. And he says yes. Now what does that say? Pay attention. What it says is that reaching people, to bring them to church or bring them to Christ, is a process. And that process will include people who will be the set-up people, and it will include a closer. You say, Pastor, that'll make a bit of sense to me. You've got to know baseball. You've got a starting pitcher in baseball, and when the starting pitcher gets tired or is not doing very well, then they send, up, they send in other relievers. And then they've got a set-up man who comes in, and the set-up man sets it up for the closer who finishes out the game. Many of you are going, I don't understand a word he just said. Talk to your husband. Okay. A gentleman did a study some years ago by the name of Walt Larimore. And what he studied was how people came to know the Lord. What he found was amazing. He found that it takes a minimum, generally speaking, this is not true of everybody, but generally speaking, a minimum of nine invitations before a person will respond favorably to an invitation. Nine invites to church before they'll come. Nine invitations to give their life to Jesus before they'll respond to that if they do. Okay? Now I believe Matthew has already been asked. Not once, not twice. He could have been asked up to eight times. Who knows? But Jesus comes at the right time and asks, and Matthew says, yes. We get discouraged because we ask people, and they say no. And so we just kind of throw in the towel and say, I'm tired of asking. Remember, every time you invite somebody, whether they say yes or no, you are part of the process. You might be the starting pitcher. You might be a reliever. You might be a setup person. And sometimes you might be the, the one who closes it all out. They'll say yes to you. They've said no, no ten times to Pastor Jim, but you come along and they say yes. Do you understand? We all work together. And sometimes it's a process. Where the Spirit of God is doing a preparatory work in their mind and heart. 
until that certain person comes and asks the same question that we've asked and they say yes. And that's what happened to Matthew. There was something going on in his life, perhaps, that prompted him today to say yes, where yesterday he had said no. Don't give up on people. Keep asking, keep inviting. It's a process. Jesus came to Matthew. Jesus invited Matthew. Thirdly, Jesus made an offer to Matthew. He offered Matthew himself. Follow who? See, sometimes when we invite people, we invite them to the wrong thing and they're not interested. Jesus did not invite Matthew to embrace another philosophy. Philosophies are a dime or a dozen, everybody has one. If you don't like what's the philosophy today, hang around, you'll get a new one tomorrow. Jesus didn't invite Matthew to embrace another philosophy. He didn't invite Matthew to come into another religion. He didn't invite Matthew to a set of rules of do and don't. He didn't invite Matthew to make a commitment to something. He didn't invite Matthew to commit himself to something where he's got to give more of his time and more of his money and more of his effort. Jesus didn't do any of that. What Jesus said to Matthew is, I give you me. Follow me. And so oftentimes we get caught up in trying to invite people to things that they have no interest in. Instead of inviting them to things that they don't have no interest in, invite them to the one that has something to offer them. Jesus said to Matthew, you're empty. I am the bread of life. I give you myself. You are lonely. I will never leave or forsake you. I'm the friend that's closer than a brother. I give you me. You are guilty. I give you forgiveness. I give you peace of mind. I give you me. You're afraid. You're afraid of tomorrow and you're afraid of the grave and you should be. I give you me. I'll take away your fear of tomorrow. I'll take away your fear of the grave because I am the resurrection and the life. You're insecure. I'm the rock of all ages. I don't move. I'm unshakable, immovable. I give you me. And Matthew was listening. Because Jesus had everything his life needed. 
He just didn't know where to go. He thought money would do it. But let's not be hard on him because some of us think that relationships will do it. Or just another religion or philosophy will do it. Or we just need to get more toys. What you and I need is the person of Jesus. And that's what we need to give to others. Not a Baptist church. Jesus. Not another creed or code or cause or ceremony. But a risen Christ. And then lastly. Aren't you glad we're standing back and watching the master work? He's painting the picture. He came. He didn't wait he, for others to come to him. He came. He invited. He presented himself. The risen Christ. And then lastly. Jesus used the witnessing style that was comfortable to him. As Brother Jason said, you can be you better than anybody else. I can be me better than anybody else. The problem is we try to be somebody else when we do the Lord's work sometimes, and we find that we do not succeed, we find that we're ineffective and we even fail miserably. Jesus came to Matthew and he simply looked at him and said, follow me. As I said earlier, just two words. He didn't quote any scripture at Matthew. He didn't pull out the King James Bible and pound scripture at him. He didn't debate with him. He didn't argue with him. He didn't beg him. He didn't plead him. He didn't explain. He didn't give some long-winded speech. He just looked at Matthew and he said, follow me. And Matthew followed him. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, well, pastor, you're really making an unfair comparison because Jesus is God. And Jesus can do that. We can't. Why can't we? You got good theology, don't you? As Jason sang, and I, you know, it's amazing how the Lord uses the songs He sung to set me up. And maybe I'm saying some things that helped His songs. But think about this: when Jesus was ready to leave, He said to the disciples. I'm going to send you somebody. I'm going to send you a comforter. I'm going to send you a paraclete. I'm going to send you the third member of the Holy Trinity. When I go up, he's coming down. And he will come inside of you. And he will give you the ability to do everything I did. And more. You see, whatever Jesus did, we can do. And what Jesus did was, he understood who he was, and he invited people according to his strengths. Jesus was not a long preacher. He wasn't a long speaker. He was a man who could capsulize and summarize truth very quickly. He, and everybody he talks with in the Bible, he does that. 
He says, simply says, follow me. He used his words. He used his charisma. What did Peter use? You know, Peter was an inviter. He was a strong personality. He was an A personality. He was an alpha dog. And Peter used that personality to invite people. He got up in people's face. He chewed on their ear a little bit. I guess it's better than cutting it off. But he used his personality, his aggressive, upfront, extroverted personality to witness. Paul used his intellect. Paul was a, was a genius. But Paul kept up with the newspaper. He read current events. Paul could talk with somebody about sports. He could talk to somebody about politics. He could talk to somebody about history or about science. Paul was a well-learned man, and he used his intellect to witness. Peter used his personality to witness. Jesus used just a few words to witness. The blind man, what did he use? He used his testimony. He said, listen, you big shot theologians, I don't know how to explain all this. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. The Samaritan woman used her excitement. When Jesus changed her life at that well, she went back to Samaria and she was kicking up her heels. She was excited. She was like a pony in the pasture. And those people couldn't figure out what in the world's wrong with that woman. She said, come and I'll show you. Her enthusiasm was contagious and she used it. Matthew used his money. If you read on in those verses we just read, after he gave his life to Christ, he had a big party. He invited all of his tax collector friends. That's the only ones who'd come. And he used his money to pay for the party that Jesus could speak to him. Dorcas, in the book of Acts, was a lady who could cook, who could wash, who could sew. And the Bible says she used her good hands ministry. That's not a plug for State Farm, by the way. But she used her, her good hands to endear people to her that they would listen to her witness. Joyce Gleave was a school teacher. Somebody gave her 600 little wooden crosses. She said, what in the world am I going to do with these? I know. I'm going to give them to all the students I teach. She went to the principal. The principal said, no, thank you. You know the story. She said, no, you can't do that. But she said, I, I need to witness. I need to invite my students. I have a burden for them. So you know what she did? She took those crosses and she went to the homes of each of those 600 students over the course of the year. She knocked on their door. She introduced herself to the parents. She said, I'm your child's teacher. She gave them a cross. She prayed with them and she went on. 600 of her students found out she cared about them, not just in this life, but the life to come. And only in heaven will we know the impact of that. In closing, the master is about through with the picture. History as we know it is about to end. Are you listening? You get tired of hearing this. History as we know it is about to end. 
What we're going to do, we better do now. The time for standing up in the background and watching is over. The Master is beckoning us to come and take the brush and finish the great commission that he has given us. The question is, will we say, I can't, I won't, or will we say, I will? The commission has been given. The command has been given. The power has been provided. The resources of this church are available for you to use. We've got love story tracks out there. We have the little tickets to invite people to church. The opportunity is there every single day we wake up. There's an opportunity to invite somebody. There's the urgency. We are witnessing the end of an age. The urgency is here. We have everything we need. We have the commission, the command, the power, the resources, the opportunity, the urgency. There's one thing we're missing. And maybe it's the most important thing. The desire. The desire. Do we really care? Do we really care if nobody comes to church in our circle of friends and family? Do we really care that many of those in our friendship circle and our family circles might be perishing at this very moment? Do we really care? I don't preach these sermons to make you feel guilty. If that's all I've done, I've failed. These sermons are preached to motivate you. To motivate you. To motivate me. Will we become a praying people? Will we become a reaching people? 100 years from now when the historians write about Miles Road Baptist Church 2015 and they have you and I and our pictures are in the annual. What will they say about us? We prayed, and God showed us great and mighty things that we could never know or never do. That we reached out into our families and brought many of our family members to Jesus. We reached out into the community and brought many of our community friends to the church. That there's people in heaven because we made the effort to try. Will they say in hundred years from now in the history books, this church called Miles Road, this was their finest hour. Or will they say we failed? They listened to the sermons. They cried a few tears. They raised their hand. And then they went out the door and forgot it all. They did nothing. And the nation went down the tubes, the church went down the tubes, the homes went down the tubes, and family and friends went down the tubes. They failed miserably. Shame, shame, shame. What will they say? 
We're making history. Each one reach one. May we go across the street and bring them. May we reach across the table. Next week, will we reach across the world? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. The invitation is really very simple. Right where you're seated with your head bowed and your eyes closed. Right where you're seated. You do what you want with the challenge that's been given. I could ask you to raise your hand. You've already raised your hand a thousand times at messages similar to this through the years. And I don't know that it's really made any difference. I could ask you to get up out of your seat and come forward, and some of you would. But you've done that before too, and it hasn't really made any difference. May I ask you right where you're seated to ask the Lord to put the desire in your heart to do what you've heard. To be yourself, to take the things that God has given you as God has given them to you, and go and invite and share Jesus in some way, shape, or form. Understanding that you might be told no, but you're part of the process that will ultimately God will use to bring others to Himself. Would you ask the Lord to give you that desire? Because without the desire, nothing else really matters. And I can't give you that desire. It comes by invitation and asking God to give it to you. Our Father in heaven, give this pastor a greater desire. Give my staff a greater desire. Give my people a greater desire. Give this church a greater desire. To take the Great Commission seriously. To reach into our families. To reach into our community. Yes, to reach around the world in the time that we would have allotted that we might make a difference before it's eternally too late. I pray in Jesus' name that thy will be done. Amen.